What do you think? Should the richest people in America be taxed more? Should there be a wealth tax? Stay tuned. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Where is the constitutionally legitimate place for deciding tax policy? Is it the courts in their role as determinants of what's consistent with the Constitution? Or is it the role of the legislative branch of government to define whether or not certain sources of income may be taxed? What we're going to talk about today may be a little bit little known, but a potentially earth-shattering case, which is now before the United States Supreme Court. The case is called Moore versus the United States, and it tests whether or not the wealthiest among us can be taxed in a way that shores up a Republican form of government or if oligarchic rule will be solidified. Yeah, it's big. Our guest today in a New York Times op-ed raised the specter that, quote, it would not be a shock if some justices are tempted to go big and declare Congress powerless under the Constitution to tax the wealthiest Americans. Wouldn't that be swell? The Times titled their essay, Want to Tax the Rich for Real? Pay attention to this Supreme Court case. Joseph Fishkin and William Forbath are authors of the Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. And we have them both with us today. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, these, uh, uh, Joe and uh, Willie argue that uh, while it seems so distant to us in this new Gilded Age, quote, the Constitution imposes a duty on legislators to thwart oligarchy and promote broad distribution of wealth and political power. Who believes that today? Well, that's the intent anyway. In these times, it appears that serving the wealthiest among us is the standard operating mode of our entire system of government. It pervades all three branches, judicial, executive, and legislative. So how possible is it that this rather unique Supreme Court case, this Moore versus the United States, may reinforce that inability to tax the richest. Well, let me introduce our guest. Jo Joseph Fishkin is professor of law at UCLA, where he teaches and writes about employment discrimination law, election law, constitutional law, love that stuff, and education law, fair housing law, poverty and inequality, and distributive justice. Before joining the UCLA faculty, he taught for a decade at the University of Texas School of Law, where he was Mars McLean professor in law. He was also a visiting professor at Yale Law School. Willie Forbath holds the uh, Lloyd Benson Chair and is Associate Dean of Research at uh, UT Austin School of Law and uh, Professor of History uh, at UT. In addition to the anti-oligarchy constitution, he's the author of Law and Shaping, the Amer Shaping of the American Labor Movement and dozens of articles, book chapters, and essays on legal and constitutional history and theory and comparative constitutional law. He's completing a history of Jews, law, and identity politics in the 20th century, should be interesting, starting a history of socialist lawyering and legal imagination. He occasionally writes on legal and constitutional issues for the New York Times, The Nation, and other outlets. Well, again, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. And in early December 2023, the wealthiest Americans had their day in court. What is the obscure provision in Trump's tax cut 
that is being tested by Moore versus the United States? Yeah, I'll, I can start in with that. This this case is about uh, a very minor provision of the tax code that has to do with when Americans own companies abroad, and those companies abroad have some profits that American tax system has never taxed. This uh, this law is changing the way that all of that is going to be treated, and as part of the transition, it imposed a one-time tax on these um, earnings that are sort of offshore held by corporations that Americans own. So you might think from that perspective, you know, this is just a really narrow case and it ought to be. In fact, it shouldn't be at the Supreme Court at all Mm. because this is a sort of a narrow issue. Congress has plenty of power to figure out how to treat foreign holdings. Um, But there were uh, some kind of anti-tax right-wing activists and one Ninth Circuit judge who decided, hey, this could be a vehicle. We could use this case to get a ruling out of the Supreme Court that would say no future wealth tax. And that's kind of why it got to the court. Uh-huh. So are we talking about unrealized gains and should they be taxable? And might this be the... Uh, the foot in the door. Yeah, that's the, the, the plaintiff's theory is that uh, because the taxpayers didn't get the gains directly themselves right. yet, therefore it looks like unrealized gains and that looks kind of like taxing wealth. There is a narrow way to resolve this case, which I think the court might do, which would be to say, well, this is not about unrealized gains anyway. The, corpor- the foreign corporation here, they realized their gains. They got the income. We're allowed to attribute that to Americans who own big chunks of it. We're not talking about someone who just owns a little bit. We're talking about someone who owns more than 10% of the entire company. We can attribute the gains to them. And that uh, that would be a narrow way to resolve the case. And it would raise the question of why they even heard it. <laughs> but uh, but that might be the way the court would go. The question that you raised when you quoted us about going big, uh, that's if the court decided to reach out and make this into a big case about um, saying, oh, you actually can't tax uh, mm-hmm. money that, that hasn't actually come in as income. And yet it does... It's gains. I mean, it's unrealized gains. It's gains. Let's face it, and and that's what what we're talking about here. Uh, right. The the tender spot, Bert, would be, um, and the hope, or not the hope, the the sort of the way the the kind of activist judge below um, framed it, and the way that the the sort of let's go big and 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 strike down the prospect of a wealth tax well in advance of Congress ever enacting one, hinges on the idea that that if there were a wealth tax, not what's going on here, which as Joey nicely explained, is, is reachable without, you know, can be taxable under existing law um, without reaching the much broader question of whether you have a wealth tax where you know, I, at least the common sense definitions would be folks' wealth increases in value. A person's house increases in value. Right. But 
in the existing system, both in fact and in our common sense understanding, certainly, we don't get taxed by the feds. On the, <clears throat> pardon me, on the, you know, simply in virtue of our stock portfolio or our houses increasing in value, we get taxed at the time that we uh-huh. sell, give or take. And so a wealth tax, as, as it, you know, as it, as it exists in many, many countries and as, as it likely might exist one day here, would be going after what we think of as unrealized gains. We, we, we argue strenuously that that would be fine, that Congress has ample power to decide, in addition to taxing what we think of as income, Congress can tax wealth and, and may need to for all kinds of reasons we can discuss. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, of course, they could make, dare I say, cuts to the uh, so-called defense industry, but not that they're never going to go there, let's face it. In, in what ways is the upcoming decision by the court likely to pretend whether or not a future wealth tax is on solid legal ground? So maybe this is like, you know, the, the wedge issue. Yeah, but, you know, so I guess there's one version of this case that would go really big and strike this down, strike down this narrow provision that's actually in front of them and then strike it down on grounds that would also prohibit a future wealth tax. I think after the oral argument, uh, Willie and I and many observers think that's less likely. But what I think we should still be concerned about is that the court, even if it upholds this narrow provision, might insert some language in the decision to sort of signal for the future and give them uh-huh. something to quote in the future saying, but of course a wealth tax, now that would be unconstitutional. you know. And there's, there's an argument that they have, which we think is wrong uh, for why that should be. And I think that argument you know, may find its way into the opinion, even if this narrow case goes the right way. Well, one person who is... Uh, made it clear how she feels about a wealth tax, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Uh, they've they've floated a, a ideas which could be affected by the Supreme Court decision on more. Tell us, please, about uh, the, what she has uh, floated that could be affected by a Supreme Court decision on this. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, Senator Warren and and Bernie Sanders and other progressives in Congress have been talking for some time about how we need. Uh, to tax wealth above some threshold, you know, maybe $50 million or something like that. When you have people who have uh, more wealth than that, there's a longstanding um, progressive argument that you ought to tax it for two reasons. First, because that's a fairer way to raise revenue by raising the revenue from the people who have it and who you have money that they don't need as opposed to taxing you know the middle class and the poor get more but there's also an argument that actually big concentrations of wealth are a problem for uh democratic republican as they used to call it republican government Uh and that's uh you know that's the tradition of argument that willie and i write about in the anti-oligarchy constitution this idea that when people have too much concentrated wealth, a certain amount of wealth and poverty, you know, but once there's so much concentrated wealth, 
you start to raise questions about not just the economic power, but the political power yes. of the wealthy in a way that starts to erode the foundations of democratic government. And I think that's part of the impetus behind this progressive argument that's been kicked around for many years and that Senator Warren, uh, you know, made a concrete proposal of, you know, relatively recently that uh, that actually taxing wealth is a good idea. And I should and I should note, this is not some crazy idea in the American system. When we tax estates, inheritances, that's exactly what we're doing. We're trying to prevent at least the intergenerational transmission of super huge amounts of wealth that could amount to kind of oligarchy. Well, of course, people on the other side argue that, well, he's or he gets generally he earned it. Uh, let, you know, let them take all the profit. But uh, there's the the idea and the, the reality that oligarchy is not a Republican with a small R form of government. It's it's quite different indeed. And the political power is there and we're seeing it now there's there's no i mean who among us doesn't think that the super wealthy have inordinate political power this is in addition to inordinate wealth and and we have a tradition not just a tradition of argument and ideas that that joey and i chronicle but a, a practice um you know in you know sort of just let's say a couple generations ago it was the norm to tax the the the, right. the the very wealthy and the high income earners at at breathtakingly high yes. rates yes. for these kinds of reasons, and um, and the inheritance tax, particularly in in eras when it was was sterner, is already we've crossed that you know bridge. We already tax wealth, as Joey pointed out. We just so far only do it you know, at the, at the point at which folks pass away. But the principle of taxing wealth and not simply income, you know, is a longstanding one is for as long as we've had an inheritance tax, a federal one. So it's a sort of, you know, there's partly the states versus the feds, but the, the idea that a kind of modern national government can't tax whatever sources it needs to in order to underwrite the general welfare and the common defense, as the yes. Constitution said, is a is a silly idea, um, and and one that our op ed urges the court not to go near. And of course, there are people on the uh, the Trump side of the uh, balance who who you know would probably oppose any and all taxes and and insist that uh, an income tax is unconstitutional of course it's been tested and it's clearly constitutional and and you write that something like this argument prevailed with a similarly conservative supreme court once before long ago please tell us about that and how that case was eventually resolved um i'll start and joey will will pitch in that the name of that case was pollock yes and the 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 era was the 1890s and it was a period in which big corporations were first looming large on the on the horizon in the US and with big corporations came you know much vaster concentrations of wealth um, than had existed at least in the industrial economy there were great concentrations yes. in the 
southern plantation economy as well. And those two were seen as a constitutional problem by the tradition we're talking about. But, but in any event, Pollock arises when these new concentrations of wealth, the famous robber barons, mm-hmm. um, appear on the scene and Congress you know, responds to a movement from below saying it's time to tax the income of the wealthy in order to have a fair distribution of the burdens of, of paying for government. And, um, and that was well within a tradition that went back all the way to the beginning of interpreting the tax clauses in the U.S. Constitution in a way that allowed Congress to decide just what I said a moment ago. It should be able to decide how to raise money when the nation needs money. And there'd been a Civil War era income tax. Mm. And um, it seemed as though having an income tax was a political question for the political branches and something that the court had already said okay to. Uh But given the kind of intensity of class politics in that 1890s moment and the genuinely radical ideas of the labor movement at the time, some many reformers at the time, the populist movement at the time, we're all pushing for, you know, programs that are, you know, that still seem radical today or, and, or ones that seemed radical at the time. And um, in that climate, the, you know, some of the conservatives on the court flipped out and said the way to see this income tax that Congress has enacted and the White House has signed is um, is is a um, is an unfair, arbitrary, unconstitutional sort of burden on the rich, a a form of discrimination. We think of discrimination Uh in different ways, but the classic form of discrimination, and let's be honest, in our constitutional tradition has often been the the wealthy few get ganged up on by the numerous many, that majoritarian government and, you know, the pesky sort of democratic nature (laughs) of the way things get enacted here means that it's quite possible when the many, you know, are of the same mind that they can do things like enact a tax that, 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 that falls heaviest on the, the well-heeled who are a minority. And that was the sort of bottom most, mm. that there was lots and lots of legalese along the way, but the bottom most concerns were those. And even in, even on the court, several fairly conservative jurists, four of them dissented saying, this is outrageous. We're, we are in effect kind of creating a special constitutional privileged class mm. that can't meaningfully be taxed. And um, that's no part of our, our job and it's nothing the constitution envisions and it will have terrible consequences because it will only cement the kind of oligarchy that's emerged. This was a time when conservatives thought, you know, concentrated wealth was discombobulating, not just for liberals and what people we'd call liberals and progressives, but even conservatives in that era were staunchly in favor of a broad distribution of wealth as they saw it, not as broad or as generous as, as others. But they, they, there were plenty of conservatives who thought it was outrageous on the court, that it was outrageous for, 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 for their brethren to, to strike this down. They got outraged. 
And more than that, the public got outraged, lawmakers got outraged, and eventually, and to everyone's surprise, since there'd been no constitutional amendments for decades, not since the Civil War and Reconstruction, eventually this one decision by the court, which abandoned all its precedent and seemed to rule out a meaningful tax on on the growing wealth of uh, kind of robber barons, um, gave rise to a constitutional amendment. And, and that's that sort of that's the famous 16th Amendment. And it's the fruit of a concerted effort by the, the people you know, mobilized to change their constitution precisely to reverse this one case that for the first time said, you know, even though it's nowhere in the text, we can do some manipulations of the text, which we can go into, Joey, you and me, if you like. But in any case, some manipulations that upended the, this tradition and said, no, it's unconstitutional, this income tax. And, 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 and the, the 16th Amendment reversed that case. And here we are a century later with a court that's being tempted to sort of read that that very amendment as magically mm. condemning a a new kind of tax on the very wealthy. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're, you know, we're raising the question, can democracy, a Republican form of government, survive uh, an oligarchy? Uh, and who has the power to tax? Our guests today are two uh, legal beagles. I think you probably have heard that term before a few times. Uh, Joseph, Joseph Fishkin and uh, Willie Forbath, who's who've written an article in the New York Times, an essay, an op-ed, want to tax the rich for real? Pay attention to this Supreme Court case, and that's the case we're talking about here. So the, 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 the limits of the Constitution, the parameters of, of the language that's in the Constitution, your essay reminds us that, quote, the Constitution required only that taxes be uniform. So is that original intent clear? Original, right. What is meant by this? And have our laws adhered to this requirement that taxes be uniform? Gentlemen. Yeah, so, so there's, two, there's two provisions in the Constitution that uh, seem to limit the broad power the original Constitution gave to lay and collect taxes. And it didn't say only certain kinds of taxes. It didn't say no income tax. It didn't say no wealth tax. All the Constitution said since 89 was um, Congress has this power and the taxes have to be uniform, which they which they have been. And also there is this provision that says direct taxes have to be apportioned by population uh, and you have to account for enslaved people according to the three-fifths clause. Mm-hmm. This particular bit about direct taxes it's the sentence that most Americans who've heard of this part of the Constitution would know by the name, the Three-Fifths Clause, because that's not only what was most famous about it, but also what was most important about it. The purpose of that clause was to protect slavery. Yes. Uh, it was to protect Southern plantation owners from the possibility that a future anti-slavery Congress might, say, enact a head tax on all enslaved people, and then the make the tax rate so high that you would effectively destroy slavery. So that was the worry. 
and the three-fifths clause was both about political power and also about taxes. It gave the South, the Southern white majority who didn't give black people any political power, right. it gave them extra political power. And it said, if there's going to be taxes, you're going to use this three-fifths clause uh, to account for uh, enslaved people in, in such a way that you're not going to be able to enact a direct tax, which is like a, a head tax is just everybody has to pay X dollars of tax. You're not going to be able to enact one of those that applies only to um, enslaved people. So this whole direct tax thing, it was there uh, to protect slavery. That was part of the original compromise, but the Civil War ended slavery. So by the time you get to the Pollock case that Willie was describing, it's 1895, slavery is gone. There really is no remaining purpose to this direct tax provision. And I'll say something sort of broader about what the purpose of that provision was. If the original intent of the Constitution had been to say no income tax or no wealth tax, they could have said that. They did write limitations on congressional power, but they didn't say those things. What happens in 1895 is that the court's conservatives, who are very worried, some of the conservatives, five of them, who are very worried about socialism and populism and the rise of this new kind of agitation, radical agitation, as Willie was describing, they said, hey, wait, we have, we have an idea here. If we view the income tax as a quote-unquote direct tax, which is not really what the original uh, you know, constitution drafters meant by direct tax, but it's a little bit ambiguous, so maybe we can call the income tax a direct tax, then you'd have to apportion it to the states by population. And of course, that makes no sense. You can't do that because some states have a lot more per capita income than other states. So if you tell a rich state and a poor state, you have to pay the same amount of tax because you have the same population, but one of them has a lot more income mm. than the other. Of course, you can't do an income tax like that. It wouldn't even be uniform. It would make no sense. So the Supreme Court conservative majority thought in Pollock, aha, we've got them. We can say this tax has to be apportioned because it's a quote-unquote direct tax, and yet it can't be apportioned. And so what that means is it can't be enacted at all. It sort of falls in this yeah. loophole, this this kind of Bermuda Triangle you know, of tax, which you can't enact because it has to be apportioned, but it can't be apportioned. So that idea is what was so odious um, about Pollock in a kind of legal craft sense. And the Supreme Court, you know, they made their decision, but the people uh, overturned it by Article 5 constitutional amendment. Everybody could see that Pollock had been completely repudiated by this constitutional amendment that says, no, actually, Congress does have the power to tax incomes from whatever source derived. That's what the amendment says without any regard to apportionment or, or you know, any of this stuff. So... Uh, of course, the 16th Amendment was about the income tax. It wasn't specifically about the topic of a wealth tax. But when you come around to the argument today against a wealth tax, the argument that animates this Moore case, what they're trying to do is revive the same move 
that the majority made in the repudiated case of Pollock. They're trying to say, aha, a wealth tax. We'll call that a direct tax. We'll say it has to be apportioned. But of course, it can't be apportioned. So therefore, you can't enact it at all. And this makes no sense. It made no sense in 1789. It made no sense in 1795 when the Supreme Court actually confronted a wealth tax. And they said it was fine. It was a wealth tax, a very minor kind of wealth. It was a tax on fancy carriages. Um, and anyway, we can talk about that case. That's the Hylton case. But uh, it, anyway, the argument made no sense in 1895 when the majority of the Supreme Court went for it. And what's so remarkable uh, is that the people actually repudiated the court on this point. And yet today we have a Supreme Court where at least Justice Alito, some of the justices... Uh seem inclined to revive that logic of Pollock that the people rejected. So even though the, the Pollock case was decided the way it was decided, uh, you know, here we are 120-some years later, that the, there are interests that would like it to be not reversed <laughs> and and to have the Pollock uh, decision uh, be, be a new precedent. And this court doesn't always adhere to precedent, that's for sure. How, how clearly precedent-setting is that case, Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust? I should say there's something interesting about the the way to think about precedent here, because usually when you're talking about precedents, you're talking about the Supreme Court held this and therefore to hold otherwise would be, you know, to go against or overturn precedent. Pollock is kind of the opposite situation. The Supreme Court held what it held. And then the people decisively, with a kind of massive supermajority, uh-huh. repudiated the court in that case. And everybody at the time understood that the 16th Amendment was a repudiation of that case. So Pollock today ought to be a kind of anti-precedent. Uh-huh. It's the opposite of we should follow Pollock. It's that it would be incredibly uh, kind of audacious of the court to revive some of the logic of Pollock when that case has been squarely overturned by the people using this very hard to use power to amend the constitution. So I think when you think about Pollock today, it's, it's sort of, it's the opposite of a precedent. It's an anti-precedent. So yeah, it's more like the precedent is the 16th amendment and the overturning of Pollock. And yes. And part of what's, so kind of ironic and vexed about the idea that the court may either squarely or or in what we call dicta as a matter of strong signaling for the future either way the court may flout its own originalist uh-huh. banner. that the the sort of banner of originalism which which not all but but many of the conservatives on the on the court hold aloft is a banner that says, look to the original meaning, the original intent, the original intent, the original public understanding of a provision of the Constitution, and abide by that. And the original meaning and public understanding of the 16th Amendment was we've right, blown up and squarely rejected the reasoning mm-hmm. 
and and the holdings and everything about the Pollock case about as firmly as the American people have rejected any case in the nation's history. So that that's the it's it's both the precedent embodied in an amendment to the Constitution uh-huh. and a and and a theory and method of deciding constitutional questions that ordinarily says look at the original understanding of a of a provision and apply it. And here that that application of the original understanding of the 16th Amendment would would prompt the court to say this is easy. Congress has the power to to enact a wealth tax when and if it chooses to do so. Well, it does seem like more the uh, uh, plaintiff in this case uh, would like very much to reinstate and just uh, overturn uh, and ignore the 16th Amendment. And you talk about originalists. Uh, there's a number of people who claim to be originalists, even though the intent of the framers has always had some degree of being debatable. If they intend to adhere to the original intent, it sounds like you're confident that, again, if they adhere to the original intent, that that would affect their ruling uh, in favor of the U.S. side of the case. Yes? Right. They don't need to reach these grand issues at all to decide in favor of the U.S. for for reasons that Joey sketched earlier. Um, But yes, if they were to reach the bigger question of allowing, you know, whether the Constitution allows Congress to to um, to tax wealth in some future fashion that isn't amenable to a narrower kind of way of upholding, right? If, if, if they go for the big casino and they're faithful to originalism, then they'll decide for the government again in a broader way. You know, our hunch is that they'll decide likely for the government in the narrow way. And, and the, and the, and the, and the real game as far as the sort of future fortunes of a, of a wealth tax are concerned will be whether they refrain from saying, um, don't be mistaken. You, you progressives, we are letting it be known now that a, that a real wealth tax would be unconstitutional. And, and, and that would flout their, their originalist, uh, commitments. Uh. Interesting, interesting. Well, the this is an interesting, dare I say, Supreme Court, that's for sure. There are at least two members of the two justices who have had remarkably cozy relations with the super-rich. Any sense of how that might affect their action? I mean, that's not a majority, and there, there's a, you know who those two are. Yeah, we know. Yeah, we are. I'll I let mean, Joey answer that. No, go ahead. I'm I'm very leery of saying, I think, I think it's what, 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 you know, what, what, you know, there are many reasons why, why the, the, the justices closest to the, you know, with, with the most publicly kind of scandalous connections to Mm -hmm. the super rich. There are many reasons why they might do this. Um, And I'm, I'm not inclined. I don't know how Joey thinks or feels about it. I'm not inclined to say it's because they vacation and hobnob with these people. I think it's, it's, it's sort of that, but probably equally so that, that, that it's their outlook and their, you know, it's a lot of things about them, their connections to a movement, you know, 
which in other words, if you're if you're a movement judge or justice the way they are um, to the, committed to the right wing of the Republican Party, which is kind of a movement party in that respect. Right. Of super conservative right wing folks. Um, even if you know, if you even if you don't have, you know, all these personal connections, you you could very well you know, decide the way um, these these two gentlemen might decide that that would be my view that I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't be be I wouldn't be inclined to to attribute it to their personal connections. Right. They they tend to be that kind of uh, politics. Go ahead. I was just going to say there's a certain unseemliness to it. It's you don't want the justices to be getting these enormous gifts and fancy trips, which undoubtedly helps cement uh, what is already a pre-existing, extremely strong, tight relationship between justices Alito and Thomas and the sort of federalist society world that both they and some of these billionaires are part of. I mean, in this particular case, there was a lot of public discussion about the fact that a uh, non-billionaire, but, you know, a, a friend of Justice Alito's who regularly writes, uh, kind of gives him space on the Wall Street Journal op-ed page, this, this lawyer, journalist, whatever, David Rivkin, he's one of the lawyers for the Moors in Moore oh versus United States. You know, he's he's actually one of the people who brought the case. And so some people said, well, Justice Alito, I mean, come on, this guy's your close friend. Surely you should recuse yourself from this case. And, you know, unsurprisingly, he didn't. But I don't think that is, you know, why Justice Alito is going to try to decide the case the way he is. I think it's sort of the causation runs uh -huh. the other way. It's mostly because Justice Alito is committed to these extremely political right wing approaches to constitutionalism that he has these friends. Yeah, that's his uh, political uh, his political bent. It's it's for real. He honestly believes that stuff. He's a true believer, so it seems. And again, for those who just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive in the face of uh, uh, determined efforts to uh, replace democracy with an oligarchy. Our guests today are uh, two lawyers, Joseph uh, Fishkin and William Forbath, or at least law instructors, and they've written an essay in the New York Times uh, just a few days ago uh, titled... Uh, Want to tax the rich for real? Pay attention to this Supreme Court case. And we're talking about Moore versus the United States. And as an unabashed liberal, I try to maintain optimism in the face of a right-wing onslaught. Sometimes it's hard. You point out that it took a, his quote, it took a massive cross-party political movement to overturn Pollock and restore Congress's broad power to tax. Excuse my worry about this, but I don't see such a coming together now. There's far too much worship of wealth, especially by average income people. Your thoughts on the possibility of a cross-party political movement on this now, or maybe it won't even be necessary. What, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think um, whatever the court does in Moore, I don't think there's any real likelihood that it will spark the same kind of outrage. I mean, let me, let me revise that. If the court does what we think likely, and that is, you know, only signal it's that it's, that it's ready to strike down a, a wealth tax rather than um, do so in a kind of uh, 
preventative way. In particular, it's not going to spark a movement um, as such. But um, the broader question is the same. If before we have a wealth tax and can worry in on, in the sort of in the real in real time worrying about whether a wealth tax will be struck down, we first need a wealth tax. In order to have a wealth tax, we need a much more solid, you know, progressive majority in the in in the White House and and in the Congress, right? Yeah. And about the possibility that that um, that such a majority may materialize. Uh, I remain optimistic, not tomorrow, but over time. I think it's the only it's the only way to act in the political arena is is to have some hope that uh, that one can build that kind of majority. Well, a commitment to prevent oligarchy. That's what, you know, this country was founded on. It once stood at the center of a really strong tradition in American political and constitutional thought. And uh, it seems yeah. that this case may test whether the justices think that Congress has a duty to thwart oligarchy and to promote a broad I, I think that broad commitment and that broad principle is, is that is a, you know, in, in, in real terms, not a cross-party, you know, tradition in the sense of who controls or who sort of seems to be in charge of the Republican Party right now, but more broadly. The tradition, as we've chronicled it, had plenty of Republican supporters. Um, the sort of original founders of the Republican Party were steeped in that tradition. So it's it's not an inherently Democratic or Republican tradition, nor is it a, a particularly radical one. Right. In many of its, you know, in many of the forms that it's taken, it's pretty mainstream. And you know, I, I call myself a, a traditional liberal, but then again, I'm a conservative too because I want to you know if you think about the the, root, the word conservative conserving our basic principles our basic understanding that's I think you know if, if you're going to be conservative then you know protecting the right of Congress to decide taxes uh, and to thwart oligarchy is really conservative I need to ask what is the tradition of democracy of opportunity what does that mean So it's this is you're you're talking about the subject of our book, the anti oligarchy yes, constitution. Yes, jumped a little bit. And what we what we're doing, yeah, it's fine. What what we're doing in the book, and obviously it's very relevant to our conversation today. We're tracing this this uh, way of thinking about the constitution that has its roots in uh, in Republican small r Republican thought at the founding um, that says in order to preserve a Republican government in the United States, we are going to need to do uh, three things. We're going to need to prevent oligarchy, prevent too much political and economic from being concentrated in too few hands. We're going to need to preserve a broad middle class, and we're going to need that to be a racially inclusive mm. Uh, broad middle class. This sort of racial inclusion thread is the part. This is the, the sad thing about this is it's the Republican Party at its founding that really brought these ideas all together. And now today, the Republicans have become such a pro oligarchy seeming party. Yes. But at the at the beginning of the Republican Party and the eve of the Civil War and just before, 
the idea was if we're going to preserve the democracy that the constitution or the republic they would have said that the constitution envisions and sets out what we need is to find ways through law to do all three of those things and the republicans at that time had precedents to look back on they could see the ways that you know uh, earlier generations from the founding through the Jacksonian Democrats and whatever had tried to break up concentrated wealth and tried to, uh, you know, break up plantations from being these giant estates that would create a landed aristocracy. They had thought before about how maybe the way to build a republic is to give lots of people, they were thinking of white men, but, you know, at least a broad group of lots of people, land and the ability to farm that land. And what happened in Reconstruction after the Civil War is that these same Republican principles sort of got turned into thinking, well, how are we, we've abolished slavery. How are we going to actually make a republic here, a multiracial republic, we need, and they argued, the radical Republicans argued for things like, we need to break up the plantations and distribute the land to the black people who are now free so that they will actually have the kind of material basis to be Republican citizens. And we need to create schools for the freed people and all of this kind of stuff. And so basically this tradition which which begins at the beginning of the Republic, traces all the way through the Civil War. It becomes the impetus as well for this populist revolt yes. in the late 19th century uh, against the new um, industrial robber barons who had again become a kind of oligarchy that they could, the people could see from this tradition. They could sort of recognize was a new version of an old problem and that they made constitutional arguments in politics, uh, not not arguments in front of a court necessarily, uh -huh. but constitutional arguments for uh, why we needed to do something about it. Interesting. It, it does seem that the courts of today have had virtually nothing to say about any threat of oligarchy, that the court, you know, they just stay the heck away from it. Nobody wants to touch that, uh, except people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who are not in the court, obviously, but in, in, uh, in well, it, it has to do with the court of public opinion, which clearly does matter. People forget that. I mean, it mattered with the uh, previous case, the Pollock case, and uh, it still matters today. So would, would you contend that an oligarchic system in which economic and therefore political power being concentrated at the top is in fact unconstitutional. Are there clear constitutional restraints against an oligarchy? I guess, I guess the first thing I would say is when you say, is it unconstitutional? Mm. What most people think when you hear those words is, can you go to court and get it struck down? You know? Uh, and that's, not the quite the way that people operating in this anti-oligarchy tradition, this democracy of opportunity tradition, uh, use the Constitution. That's not quite how they understood it. And I think it's important, you know, that we revive this other way of thinking about the Constitution, which is that sometimes the Constitution doesn't just say courts should strike something down, but it imposes duties on Congress. It imposes duties on the elected branches to come up with policies 
that will help preserve democracy and stop oligarchy. That tradition, I think, is what we need to revive today. And that would help us understand why courts ought to back off when confronted with something like, you know, if Elizabeth Warren manages to enact a wealth tax, because there's important constitutional reasons why we need things like that, courts ought then uh-huh. to be reluctant to go in and, and sort of make new arguments of why it should be struck down. Well, one the, the book that, that you guys wrote is called The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Re- Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. And one reviewer of your book, uh, Lincoln Kaplan, said that, quote, Fishkin and Forbath seek to reorient the left toward the Constitution by framing it as an instrument of political economy, as a means of organizing an economic order through politics, end of quote. Now, to my understanding, limited though it is, this is consistent with the economic philosophy of John Maynard Keynes and Franklin Roosevelt. And those are uh, good traditions, I think. And please comment on that, if you would, please. Um, I think I, 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 I think um, Keynes is sort of you know emerges out of a out of a out of a sort of world in which there is no written constitution, and I doubt, yeah. you know, I think he would he would agree with the with the with the spirit and the project of of using government. Um, to to create a kind of of economic order in in which you know right. everyone everyone enjoys a decent livelihood and more you know everyone enjoys you know a opportunity to make a life worth living by their own lights i mean so keynes's vision and the american keynesians um certainly in the us there was there were many people that takes us to roosevelt in the in the new deal era who were both Keynesians and constitutional thinkers of just the kind that um, that you evoked, who who did see government as a vehicle for for as it were constituting a just economy and an mm-hmm. economy that can sustain democratic life, and Roosevelt, you know, was was articulate and express and talked constantly about the constitutional duties of the political branches, the executive branch, the, the, the Congress to, to create just that kind of economy, just that kind of political economy, if you want. So it's, it's pretty unambiguous when it comes to figures like Roosevelt, that that's how he talked and argued about and understood the constitutional duties of the political branches. And by the same token, he understood the, the duties of the court to be to safeguard political liberty and individual liberties and to support and get and, and stop striking down measures that intended to redistribute wealth and redistribute wealth and power. He was very clear that the court had a role and so too the political branches, but that the conservative court of his era was, was, um, was neglecting that that duty and undertaking things mm. that it had no business doing. So Roosevelt is certainly of this tradition and, and articulate and, and, and steeped in it. And it seems that at this moment in time, the liberal left, uh, the definition is, is fluid, is sort of uh, nebulous, but it, there, it, it sounds like 
and so tell me if I'm right here that there this this case and and your book about the anti-oligarchy constitution uh, helps create a a uh, basis for the left which is not you know an extreme left it's it's traditional left you know the populist and everything uh, to to talk about uh, to talk about our vision of uh, in economic order, uh, changing it through politics and, and having, as was said, a democracy of opportunity so that we are not, as I often say on the show, we are not without power. We are not powerless. It, it's shown in the past, the, the case, the poly case, that the public opinion does matter. There is a court of public opinion. Uh, your thoughts on what people can do about this to further uh, movements to uh, make sure that the, that uh, Congress lives up to its responsibility to prevent oligarchy. Yeah, look, I mean, the story that we hope to tell in the book is mostly there to give people on the broad left a sense of permission to make constitutional arguments, to make claims about the Constitution, that it's not just this special expert thing that's only for elite judges and a few conservative, you know, big wigs who say they know what the original meaning was, which, by the way, they are making up. Yes. It's not just for them. It's the Constitution is something that Americans sustain by having it be a part of our politics. And so in politics, you can make constitutional arguments. For, for much of American history, that was just sort of an obvious truism. But lately, in the last sort of half century or, or a little more, the, uh, the way that we've separated law and, and constitution on one side from politics on the other has been very detrimental to progressive uh, politics uh -huh. and progressive constitutionalism. So, you know, the, the real answer to your question of what can people do yes. is is political organizing, is to be involved in politics at every level, to find the people in your own lives who you know who are not engaged in politics and help them become engaged and register to vote and be involved in political campaigns and movements and all of that. That's the way to do uh, progressive politics in the long run. And part of what our book is there to say is, you know, it's okay. In fact, it would be important and a good thing to make constitutional arguments as part of that politics too. Like you're allowed to say, you don't have to be a con law expert uh, to, or, you know, like a lawyer or law professor to say that there's a constitutional problem when we let a few rich people have this much power in what's supposed to be a republic. And uh, that's the kind of argument that the book shows has a deep, long history in, uh, in American politics. It's really a, a political story. So we, the people, what a concept, can actually do something here and uh, that, that the government, at least uh, the way the Constitution is written, uh, it's supposed to, to serve everybody's interest and, and provide a democracy of opportunity. What's your sense of, just a technical question, when the Moore case, what, what's going to happen to it? Is it going to be settled quickly, do you think? Or, or what do you think will happen with that? 
Yeah, that's hard to tell. The Supreme Court doesn't show its hand too much about timing. It'll be decided sometime before next June. Uh, probably if it if if it goes as the oral argument made it sound like it might, it it will be a lot sooner than June, yeah. sometime in the spring. But I think the um, you know the questions that it raised uh, will be fighting about for a long time beyond <laughs> this one case. Ah, twas ever thus. It goes on and on and on. And the book is called The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. And our guests have been its uh, co-authors, Joseph Fishkin and William Forbath. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, it's going to be an interesting case to watch. And uh, we'll see what happens in the future with regard to uh, being able to tax the rich fairly as they're not being done right now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having you. For keeping people free The USA was just starting out A whole brand new country And so our people spelled it out The things that we should be And they put those principles down on paper And called it the Constitution And it's been helping us run our country ever since then If you enjoyed that discussion Don't miss a single show Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.